Welcome everyone to the Maternal Health Innovation Podcast Season 2. I'm your host today, Dr. Rachel Arudi. I'm an OBGYN and assistant professor at UNC Chapel Hill. And I also work at the North Carolina Women's Health Branch at the North Carolina Department of Public Health. This podcast is created by the Maternal Health Learning and Innovation Center at UNC Chapel Hill. Episodes are released weekly, so be sure you're subscribed to hear future episodes. In this podcast, we listen to maternal health innovators about ways we can implement change to improve maternal health in the U.S. In this episode, we'll be talking to Anna Rodney, the founder of Mom Cares. Mom Cares is a postpartum doula program designed to help support Black mothers in the NICU that are undersupported and facing financial stress. To do this, they provide meals, transportation, bedside support, birth planning, education, and self-care opportunities to mothers in need. Anna is also the chair of the Baltimore Maternal Mortality Review Board and a member of the Infant Mortality Review Board. I'm really excited to talk to Anna today. I can't wait to ask her some of these questions and get some more about her experiences in doing this important work. So first, Anna, let's get to know you a little better. Could you share a little bit about yourself and what has drawn you to this work? Sure, of course. So first of all, thank you for having me. This is um, an awesome opportunity and I'm looking forward to a great conversation. So I have been a doula for the last 15 years. I fell into doula work in college and just decided that it was all that I wanted and more. And so I've stuck with it throughout the years. My own pregnancy and postpartum journey is what drove me to create Mom Cares. Um, I did have a infant in the NICU and had to navigate that for six months. And so that gave me plenty of time to figure out where there were gaps and huge gaping holes and areas of need enough to create Mom Cares. And so Mom Cares has been around since 2017, and we are very excited to be moving ever forward in our work and support of families here in Baltimore City and beyond. I'm a believer in women and birthing folks and people that give life. All of those folks deserve support, support and love and as little stress as possible. And we know that there's studies about how stress can affect the pregnancy and the babies. And so we want to just make sure in our work at Mom Cares that we are surrounding our families with as much support and resources and care and compassion as possible so we then can see those positive outcomes. So that is what I'm here. I'm all about birth. I'm also a Reiki practitioner, a yoga instructor, all of the the hippie things that you can think of. I have either trained to do them or are doing them myself. So that's me. Thanks for that. Um, You spoke about some of the needs that you were seeing when your child was in the NICU or the gaping holes, you said. Can you share a little bit about what some of those gaping holes were? Absolutely. So especially with my work as a doula, my first thought was, oh, I'm a doula. This is an emergency situation. It sucks. But the birth community will surround me. The birth community, that's what they do. They they support they support mothers in birth. What I didn't realize is because there's such a focus on, rightly so, there's such a focus on natural birth, low intervention, no intervention birth. When there was an emergency, people didn't know how to handle it and weren't equipped to provide support. And so had I been a mother who needed additional support or really deep care and support, but I had a, a natural childbirth that in um, a healthy baby and we went home, I'm confident that we would have been able to find support in our community because my son came out on morphine and was in an incubator and on life support. There are a lot of folks that I was looking to for support that didn't know how to support. 
So that was very jarring and heartbreaking and again led to us kind of creating what mom cares is today. Um, Also, as far as the medical structure is concerned, I found myself being black and overweight and single and underemployed and unemployed at one point. I mean, all of those other identities seemed to trump my identity as mom in the NICU. And I found myself having to explain myself, having to take up for myself, advocate for myself in a space where I really should have been focused on the health and well-being of myself and my son, um, instead of kind of combating these these biases and um, these instances of discrimination. And so my thought was every time I went head to head or toe to toe with a medical provider about my background or my education, my thought was always, what about the moms who don't have this to back on? What about the moms who don't feel like doing it? What about the moms who, you know, are too tired (laughs) to, you know, rattle off their resume to a doctor in order to get them to listen? And so that is really where, what rung in my head as we were creating the programming and the structure of mom cares is um, how can we stand in the gap for our moms who shouldn't be asked to prove themselves in order to get compassionate care and support for their little ones? So you actually had experiences where you felt that if you hadn't been able to advocate for yourself and rattle off your CV, that maybe your baby would have gotten less standard care or less high quality care? Absolutely. I mean, there were, you know, I was, I looked pretty rough back in those days, you know, coming out of emergency surgery, having three morbidities of myself. I didn't look like I looked today. You know, I look like someone that might not be as well-educated or whatever that's supposed to look like. And especially with doctors knowing that I was single at the time and really just leaning on other biases that we know are present in the, the medical system, I'm absolutely sure that me having to kind of will myself to stand up straight enough to say, no, I'm college educated. I know my rights. I am well-versed in medical practices and best practices in birth. Having to push myself into that position enough to get people to listen was a lot of work and where my heart was broken and I was angry and scared and sad and hurt. And I still found myself having to do that to qualify myself enough to get the response that I needed about, you know, my son's care, our options, um, and just responding to, to my concerns. I'm really sorry that we have to hear those stories, but I'm really glad that you're doing work in the space to try to improve the situation for other people who are in your situation. There's a lot of questions I have for you about the work you're doing, but wanted to start by talking to you a little bit about the work that you're doing with the MMRC or the Maternal Mortality Review Committee um, in Baltimore City. So I know that you're aware of this and I don't know that our audience is, but the Black Mamas Matter Alliance recently published along with the CDC a report for MMRCs called Sharing Power with Communities. And they were outlining or guidance for MMRCs that wanted to work with community members in the process of, of the MMRC. So maybe... So I would love to hear your thoughts about that report, but maybe you could start by, because I don't know if everybody in our audience knows exactly what an MMRC does. So maybe you could just start by saying a little bit about what you all do as, as the chair there and then how you incorporate that report or what your thoughts are about that report in your work. Absolutely. So MMRC is a, we have a monthly meeting in which we gather as stakeholders and professionals in the world of birth, maternal and child health. We gather together as a team and go over one to two cases in depth, a mom who has passed away. And it's been determined that it's either pregnancy related or pregnancy associated. So And there's a difference. So pregnancy related means because this woman 
was pregnant and had this baby, she died. Or in pregnancy associated is this woman was pregnant, had a baby, um, and she died within the within a certain time frame of having that baby or being pregnant. And so we go through both of those types of deaths and death. And as a as a group, we look at how the system failed that mom, that birthing person. And we basically dissect with all of the information that we have on the birthing person, um, where the gaps in service are, where the failings were. Was there a space or a point in time in which we could have saved this mother? What in her treatment could have been improved or could have been changed? And from there, we use these instances and cases throughout the year to create suggestions and recommendations for the the birth community, specifically hospitals, health department, and other larger institutions that impact and support largely birthing folks in our city. Um, And so that's what we do. It, It can be very emotionally taxing. It can be triggering. It can be enraging. I usually end up at some point angry about what happened to the person that we're reviewing. But our intention and our goal is to make sure that this doesn't happen again, to make sure that eventually we don't have any cases to review because we're not losing mothers in the way that we've been losing mothers. And so at the end of the year, usually the MMRC here in Baltimore um, will create a report and we'll publish it and share it widely with our recommendations around what needs to be improved to make sure that we're not losing folks in birth or in their postpartum period. What are your thoughts about, so I know in the, everything you're saying, I'm, I also assist a maternal mortality review committee here in North Carolina. And so I can empathize with, you know, even sleepless nights thinking about cases and just that experience, like the visceral experience about hearing it and confronting it. And I can't even imagine for you when you're confronting it as someone who's gone through some of the same experiences and like you were talking about different types of discrimination that you experienced. I know the Black Mamas Matter Alliance was trying to, the CDC has wanted to have community members and people with lived experience to inform the work that the MMRC does. And there's definitely, the CDC says that we should do that. And there's lots of places that try to do that, but are we actually really doing it? And are we doing it in a meaningful way? And so I know that was kind of the focus of the Black Mamas Matter Alliance and they, you know, actually looking at how was this happening in some of the review committees around the country and was it happening in a meaningful way? And they gave some guidelines. What are your thoughts about those guidelines and how do you, how do you try to adhere to those guidelines or not adhere to them? Or do you agree with them or, you know? Well, yeah. So I think that the Black Mamas Matter Alliance is, has, has done a good job at positioning themselves as the um, main arm of advocacy that is representing the larger population of Black mamas, Black birthing folks. Um, And so you're not going to get me to say anything (laughs) against um, what what they have put forth. I can speak to some of the things that the MMRC here in Baltimore incorporated in searching for members. I believe personally that I kind of cheated. I am, you know, I have the lived experience. I am an active community member and I'm also a birth professional. Um, But There was a call that came out through the health department looking for participants. There was an application. There was um, a third party um, was brought in to do the interviews and and to manage the application. And so the third party came in. We went through the interview process. We I was able to meet and speak with, you know, the folks at the health department where our MMRC is housed. And then we were selected by that third party. There's always been 
a intention to include doulas and other people with lived experiences. I personally serve on the Fetal Infant Mortality Review Board as well, not as the chair, but just as a member. And just seeing the juxtaposition between the two committees, one that is very much almost exclusively professionals, institutions that are being represented, government organizations that are being represented, and having that be what's guiding the femur, as opposed to the MMRC that also has doulas and people with lived experiences and, you know, the professionals and we have a doctor, uh, you know, a high-risk doctor on. And so conversations can get heated, right? Because everybody is coming to the table with their own experience, their own expectations, their own vested interests. Some folks like myself <laughs> um, don't really, aren't really willing to subscribe to the niceties of that you might see in one of these other meetings. And so when I say I'm angry, I say that to the board. Like we know what's going on. We can look at the the narrative in these cases and say this is discrimination. Okay, we've, we've gone over 60, you know, cases. When is there what are we going to do about it? What is our recommendation. We can say how terrible it is and shed a tear even in these meetings. What are we doing past the meeting? And I think that having that mix of folks kind of brings it home to people who don't, aren't living it and people who aren't living it, but are supremely invested, people who aren't living it and um, may not be as invested. You know, this work is hard and it, it's taxing. Um, and so to be able to have such a diverse group of folks it makes it harder, but it also makes it more fruitful because we aren't we don't have the usual suspects at the table. And there are people with pure intention who really want to see a resolve from these meetings and reviewing these cases. It's really great. So it also I also hear you saying that, you know, there's this space of we have to be uncomfortable, we have to be angry, we have to do these things that aren't necessarily like the way that the medical community has been doing things for many years because we are not fixing the problem. Like We have to do something different. Absolutely. There has to be an acknowledgement of the fact that we're here because something is broken. Like we're not Mm -hmm. here to pat ourselves on the back. We're here because something isn't working and hasn't been working for quite some time. And especially those who are working within the system that hasn't been working, that can be hard and bring up emotions that we might not even be aware of until they're there, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. I think it can be really hard for people who feel like they've devoted their whole life to helping people and then to hear and providing biased care. That's a very hard thing to grapple with. And yeah. So can you give us some examples of how you feel that you're being the chair of the committee and also being a doula, as opposed to say, you know, a medical professional being the chair? Are there like some actionable items that have come or things that have changed directly as a result of that that you could share with us some examples? Absolutely. So Maryland Medicaid at the end of last year decided to reimburse doula work. To be clear, I am not the only doula that made it onto the MMRC. There are a number of doulas and on the, the committee. And I, as the chair, I try my best to make sure that we're including their voices because, again, this is not um, a space that all of us as doulas are familiar with or comfortable with. You know, there are a number of different type of review boards within the city. And so a lot of these people kind of have overlap and know what the process is. And so I work very hard to kind of pull in the doulas and say, you know, that, you know, you have to say, is there something, um, some feedback we haven't heard from you? Um, We also um, gave an opportunity um, at a couple of meetings to have some of the doulas 
um, present on their work and their area of focus and why their work is important. And I think that was really important as far as community building to give them a chance to take center stage and explain why their work is important to maternal health outcomes here in Baltimore City. Again, because it's so hard to, you know, doulas seem to be constantly begging to be acknowledged as professionals in the field of birth work. Um, and so to be to for me to be in a position to invite other doulas to the table to be able to present, I am a accomplished professional in this field and this is the work that I do in front of other medical professionals. I think it's important and it, it's humbling for me to be able to stand in that space and, and be that person to make sure that that is done. And at this point, we have you know, other people on the MMRC who are seeking out the opinion of the doulas. And we have a number of recommendations that speak to the Medicaid reimbursement rate, that speak to the ease or lack thereof to get enrolled in the Medicaid system as a doula. And so we also have some plans to make sure that we're supporting other doulas and smaller doula organizations to be able to do that because we acknowledge that doula support is important and compensation for that support is important. And the people that need it the most, at least a portion of that population is going to be dependent on Medicaid to be able to access that, especially because of the thought or the feeling that doula support is something extra or something for elite folks. And so we really are grateful to be able to make sure that people that feel like they may not have had access to it a couple of years ago or last year now know that they do indeed have access to it and are able to use those services to make sure that their outcomes are better. And so I'm very, very proud that we've been able to do that and highlight that in the work that we're doing at the MMRC. It's really great to hear. You did just start to mention how there are some barriers to doulas for working with patients. You talked about the one access for clients who don't maybe have financial resources. What about pushback from medical institutions? Have you experienced that? I understand you've been a doula for 16 years. And so that's a lot, a lot of experience at times when nobody even probably knew what a doula was. <laughs> When I didn't know what a doula was, I was just What are some of the barriers that, especially from the medical institution that you've experienced in being a doula and being able to serve patients? Right. So, I, so access, of course, but also, unfortunately, and depending on the hospital, when you walk in as a doula, there's this adversarial thing that is there between the nurses and the medical staff and, you know, this person that thinks they know everything that's going to get in our way, that's going to stop us from doing our job is here. And so I also train doulas, train and certify doulas. And so what I talk about to my doulas is the fact that we need to make sure that we are we stay in the room and acknowledge that we might be paid or compensated. There might be a contract, but ultimately at the end of the day, we're in the room at the grace of the medical professionals who have us in the room. And so we want to position ourselves as a help and a support and not an adversary, not someone who is pushing or, you know, getting in the way and all of these other things that it's not fair for us to have to navigate because we really truly are doing our job, but coming up with ways to make sure that we're disarming folks that have that idea or thought of us. And that can be hard because at the top of the list is making sure that you're advocating and supporting your, but also there's a, a, a very 
thin line that you have to kind of toe around being in community and being in concert with the medical professional. So I, I tell our doulas all the time that it's emotionally taxing because you are not only serving and advocating for mom, but you're serving and advocating for any other family member that's in the room. You have to manage and monitor emotions and energy feeling while also making sure that you are doing just enough <laughs> to stay in the room. Um, so that because the, the fact of the matter is you can advocate and be be a ball of fire and then out in the hallway, right? And so then you lose access to your family. And so we talk very at length about how to manage that identity and that role and all the responsibility that comes with it. So that's number one is really just acknowledging that you're not there just for mom. You're there to manage the environment and the energy of that environment. And that means that you're managing a lot of different people. And then for me also is, you know, I don't want to sound passe, but the self-care, you know, everybody's talking about self-care and self-care, not in like marshmallows and bubble baths, but self-care in the fact that you have to exercise a inordinate amount of emotional restraint, but, but all, at the same time being vulnerable and raw with your client, which is almost impossible. <laughs> and so making sure that you have that place to cry and to break down and to hit a wall and to, you know, get frustrated or to get happy or get, you know, excited in a space where it's not taking away from your family's experience because feeling like you're not being heard, feeling like you're not being acknowledged, not having a place for you to put your emotion can lead to burnout. And I think that it's important for us, especially as doulas of color, that we maintain ourselves enough because it's clear that we're needed. And if we're constantly burning out, our families are going without that support that they can identify with. Do you have some tips for birth workers who are also people of color specifically to avoid burnout? Um, I think having backup doulas is important. So having someone that can come and relieve you for an hour or two so you can take a shower, you know, go home, take a bath, manage the kids, take them from one babysitter to the other babysitter. I think being a part of community as well, having those Facebook, those meetups and having a, finding those confidants that you can share information with and talk to about your experience. I am an advocate of mental health um, support and therapy. I, I engaged with my therapist three years ago after supporting a mom through a birth where we knew the baby was not going to make it. And I had the point where I was like, I can make a bad decision to kind of make me feel a little bit better right now, or I can call a therapist tomorrow. And I decided to call the therapist. And I, so I think that mental health support, whatever that looks like for you is imperative as, as doulas of color, because we are traumatizing, re-traumatizing ourselves often, especially knowing that we are in the space of acknowledging, especially acknowledging the maternal health crisis, but also finding spots of joy. Like you don't want to go into a birth with a black riding hood on, you know, like you don't want to go in there sad. These, these are experiences that should be celebrated and embraced and given a shout for. And so I think that monitoring yourself to make sure that you still do enjoy it and you still are engaged in the work in a joyful way is important because that energy can translate into your service as well. And so I think just really like all things of color, I think being engaged with your own community and having support in your vehicle to making sure that you have a long career in a space. I'll also say um, that you don't have to do everything. 
I think there are a lot of, like I, at the beginning, you know, do a yoga instructor. I think that the feeling is that we need to have all of these other things to do to validate our work where that can just also burn us out. And so finding a focus and being focused on that, I think is very important and resisting the urge to have to go above and beyond with credentials and um, skills and things that, and that again is where your community is concerned. You don't have to be certified in 10 or 15 different things to serve your families. You can be certified in five things and have 10 other folks to refer out to resources. And I think that's very important. What can I, as a provider, do if I'm having an interaction with a doula that doesn't feel positive for me? What are some tips that, how can I improve that interaction or that relationship? I think resetting the expectation, acknowledging the person in the space. For me, on the other end, when I have felt like there's been some some energy between me and a provider, I've literally said, I'm here to be supportive. Like, I'm here to make sure that this birth is successful. And what are the things that I can do to make it successful? And, and you know, what are the things that you can do to make it successful? I think it's really important to acknowledge a doula in their role and their importance in the room. And then also everybody be reminded that we're here for this event. We're here for this family. We're here for this mama, this birthing person. And just saying, what do we need to do to make sure that we, we're we all on the same page so that we're not bringing this to the family because they don't need to manage that. I think that's important. I think when, when I have been in a room as a doula and I have felt like I needed to prove myself or kind of like stand up a little bit bigger or straighter, it becomes an ego thing, right? Because I have to prove myself to the provider so that I can feel comfortable taking care of the family. And that takes my energy away from the work that I'm actually doing. And so I think just giving space and acknowledging, I know that you're here for this family. I know that, you know, it's very important that they have your advocacy and your support. And I think it's, it's even more important that we are collaborating. And so what can we do to make sure that we're collaborating? This is what I'm doing. These are the things that I'm worried about or I'm responsible for. How can we collaborate to make sure the things that you're responsible for and the things that I'm responsible for aren't conflicting and are actually complementing each other? Yeah, I think that's that's a really beautiful conversation. Having a conversation. Relationship building, community building, cross, yeah. Right. Yeah, it resets anything, everything, sitting down and just grounding. Yeah, yeah. So I know we're all coming at this work in in the context in our country of systemic racism, institutional racism that has basically previously excluded Black birth workers from hospitals. So like with the history of the granny midwives who used to do you know, many deliveries, especially where I live in the, in the southern part of the U.S., many of them were enslaved, you know, um, and even after that, were still really involved in their communities doing births. And because of a number of decisions that were, you know, mostly to benefit white male institutions, that process kind of did not allow that wisdom and that of Black birth workers to continue to be, you know, invested in their communities. I'm sure you could all say this better than I just did, but <laughs> but what I know I've heard some people within the community doula world worry that if there's too much connection between doulas and medical institutions, maybe even insurance reimbursement, maybe credentialing, maybe training, that could also have an end result of pushing some people out of this work and further, you know, creating disparities. So I was just curious to see what your thoughts were about that and whether and how you think we could prevent that from happening. What has happened historically, but now prevent it from happening for Black doulas specifically? I think that we're always at risk for repeating the mistakes of the past. I think 
it's going to take a lot more than talking about the work and talking about the need then um it's going to take more than that we're we're going to actually have to put our money where our mouth is and allow people to lead what this is supposed to look like i think in here in maryland medicaid invited a group of folks to come and inform the process of creating this reimbursement. That is not to say that they got it right completely, but inviting people into the, the conversation is, I think is important. And looking at them as partners, looking at us as partners and not as people that are being serviced or being allowed to do something, but really looking at us and treating us as if we are partners in this work, equal partners in this work, I think is important. And then also understanding that not everything can be, dare I say it, evidence-based in the work, in the heart work of being a doula, that the work of emotional support, of spiritual support, you, we may not have measurable outcomes and goals, but we know that it works. We know that I, I might not know, you know, the instance of having you know, how many times I need to rub someone's back before it actually affects an outcome. But I know that when I'm talking to a mama after they've given birth, they can remember that I was just focusing on you rubbing my back while I was going through the contractions. And we know that that, that that's a benefit. And so I think that while I understand and respect evidence-based work, we also need to make space for that more, I call it heart work, that more heart work type of support that may not be quantifiable in a scientific sense. Right. So that, I mean, we might be able to, we might be able to see that outcomes are better. We have seen that outcomes are better for people who have doulas for their birth. And I think the tendency of doctors and scientists is like to try to figure out why, but why, what's the key ingredient? And it sounds like you're saying they, we, we're not going to be able to figure right. that out. It's the whole, the ethers are not going to give us that secret. The ethers are going to let us use it, but not give us the secret of, of why or how, right? I think it's just, we need to treat each other like humans. <laughs> um, you know, when I'm crying and upset, I want somebody to hold me or hug me. And sometimes when I'm crying or upset, I want somebody not to touch me and to leave me alone and to work through it, right? There's no, there's not a prescriptive formula for how to hold space for someone. You know, I can say, oh, well, last week it was, you know, it worked with my client that I, you know, patted her on her leg when she was feeling bad. This week, she might want me to just sit and be quiet and listen to her cry, you know? And I think that's the difference, I think, between doulas and other, I don't want to say non-traditional because we are traditional, but non-medical support, right? And the more medical institutionalized support. There is, how can we do this faster? How can we do this easier? How can we make sure that this is, that we can do this in the most efficient way possible? And that becomes formulaic. And I understand for different reasons why that would benefit an institution, but we're looking at institutions that are handling and caring for people. And people are not one size fit all. People do not always respond well to formulaic equations about what care should look like because we're each different. And so I, I think that we just need to make space for each other and understand that it can be both and, right? It doesn't have to be. I think for me, that was the largest lesson for me, you know, with my son. Before I gave birth to my son, I was saying, oh, I'm going to go to the woods and find a tree and I'm going to squat down and breathe my baby out. And that would have been a most, the most beautiful experience 
possible had it happened. My baby came three months early and had to be in in an incubator for two more months. And he had to be on morphine when he came out. And it sucked and it was horrible. But those things are what saved his life. My son was in an incubator, had the artificial humidity going on around him. He also had crystals on his isolate, right? Like there, it's both and. Science saved my baby, but my affirmations saved my baby as, as well. My son, the same song that I played every night before I left, we listened to that song seven years later for him to go to sleep. So we know that there's a both and that we really need as practitioners and as colleagues, we need to get on the same page with those things because it's important. <laughs> you know, we're at the place where medical advancements are absolutely saving people's lives. Um, but also we know that touch saves a person's life. We know that presence saves a person's life. When I would walk into the hospital, into the room, my son's Isolette was at the very back of the room. And as soon as I walked into the room, my son's stats would stabilize because he felt the presence of his mom. Like, that's not something that I can make up. That's something that for the six months that I was walking into those that room every day, I saw that happen. And so we have to acknowledge that as much as science and medical innovation is saving families, Connecting to people and being compassionate and seeing each other as humans is also saving lives as well. And we need to make space for both. It's really beautiful. And I think as a a medical person, I have to grapple with the fact that we aren't, we don't have all the answers. Like clearly we haven't fixed the problem, even though we've known about it for many decades. And so I think the work that you do offers this additional, you know, value and need that, you know, brings these additional resources to our patients that we can't do. So we do need. We need each other. We need each other. Exactly. What do you think is next? What do you think, if you could think of the future of maternal health and everything was how you would want it to be, what are your dreams? What does it look like for equitable maternal health in the future? Um, So I always say this as a joke, but I think equitable maternal health means that me and all of my sister doulas are on an island somewhere soaking up sun because there's no need for us to do any work, right? Because we we don't have to be on the front lines because we figured it out and we know what we're doing as far as keeping our our families alive and our mamas alive. But I, I think that in all honesty, I think there's more unraveling that needs to be done. There's more mess that needs to be made so that we can put it together in the right way. The institutionalized racism and discrimination that is bringing us to the point of needing other people to intervene, the care of our families, took centuries to to implement and to make sure it was in place. And so it's going to take some more time for us to unravel that. It's going to take more uncomfortable conversations and more commitment from people who say that they are allies. It's more than a hashtag, more than a a flag outside of the hospital, right? There's more work to be done and it's more than you probably signed up for and it's more than you probably expected or wanted to do. But in the, the space of committing and acknowledging that there's an issue that needs to be corrected, we really have to kind of dig in. And I think that there's a lot of trust building that needs to happen. There's a lot of power shifting that needs to happen, power sharing that needs to happen. And we are not going to get to a space in which our families feel 100% supported by their medical staff without doing that work, right? Without building that trust, without saying, hey, we know, you know, we know what we did. 
we know what your ancestors went through for the innovation of birth work and gynecological work, right? We know that and we're willing to to work to correct that, right? I think there needs to be an acknowledgement and then work, actual work. And so not just, you know, a day or like I said, a flag on the side of the hospital or a button that everybody's wearing, but actual tangible work that's being done in collaboration with the communities that are requiring that work to be done. I think also funding is very important. I will never, ever not say or mention funding. I think funding and supporting organizations that are grassroots, that are from and of the community to do the work. And that does not mean meeting with that organization and replicating it internally, but meeting with the organization and finding out how you can contract that organization to come and do the work. We don't need anybody to replicate our work. We're doing the work. We need the funds and the support and the fiduciary support to make sure that we're doing, that we're able to do the work that we're, everybody's acknowledging needs to be done. And so we don't need to put anything else on a nurse's plate. We don't need to require nurses to now be nurses and doulas. We don't need to ask student doctors and students, medical students to now become doulas or lactation consultants if that's not what they want to do. We need to make room for the people that are passionate and want to do it and pay them equitably to do that work. Again, at the end of the day, it comes down to joining together to make it happen and acknowledging that doulas are not multi-million dollar institutions that have multi-million dollar budgets to buy whatever they want to buy to support their work. So we are dependent on the organizations, the institutions, the hospitals to bring us into that fold without requiring us to change, to assimilate into the social I'm losing my words, but that just don't want us to assimilate. They don't expect us to assimilate into um, the culture of the hospital setting. They understand that we have our own culture and that we can exist together without being disruptive to each other. Yeah. Finding a way so that the community organizations can still operate as they always have, but just having partnerships with Partnerships, Partnerships. paid partner, like I can't paid. Yeah, absolutely. It is maddening how many meetings I've had with institutions, and I, and then six months later, oh, they're piloting a program, and it's like this looks a lot like what we talked about. Um, And again, especially coming out of the pandemic, our nurses and medical staff already have enough in their plate. They don't need to add something else, especially if there's an entire community of folks who are already doing it and doing it well. And as you said earlier, there's a secret ingredient, not a secret. And there's a deeper heart work that you were talking about that can't probably be replicated anyway by an institution. So, I mean, you can replicate the nuts and bolts, but you can't replicate the heart work per se. And I think that, you know, even that trust that the community has because the institutions have done them wrong, but they're you know, people from their community, there's, there's definitely more of a trust and openness there. And yeah, in my work, I've just even noticed something as simple as I think it's it's not simple, but the fact that institutions, we get paid after we do the work, right. But I still get my salary every month. I don't have to wait until my patients deliver their babies in seven months to get paid. Like I get my salary. The institution has that, you know, financial resources to be able to front the money, right? And wait for the payment later. But community-based organizations can't do that. So, you know, when we say you need to put all this work through, but we'll pay you later, like even that's how a lot of grants work, but community organizations can't do that. So there's just so many ways that we have asked community organizations to conform to the standards of the industry and it's just not, it won't work. Well, 
Thank you so much. I don't know if you have any other last minute things that you feel like you really want to say that we did not get to. I always have more to say, but I will encourage anyone who is listening, if you are interested in the work of Mom Cares, please visit us at momcares.org. We are always looking for donations and volunteers and support and people who are interested in and committed to supporting the work, and however that looks. I think that I will just end on the fact that every birthing person is a seed to a larger goal of a healthy, thriving community. And every community is a part of a state and every state is a part of a country and every country is a part of the world. So being kind and compassionate to someone who is bringing life into the world is literally changing the world. And we need to remember that because I believe, it's my belief, that a number of the social ills that we find ourselves combating every day would dissipate if we could just be kind and supportive and give our families a soft place to be as they are growing and bringing life into the world. That's really beautiful. Made me teary. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for taking the time to join us today to share these experiences. And thank you for listening. For more podcasts, videos, blogs, and maternal health content, you can visit the Maternal Health Learning and Innovation Center website at maternalhealthlearning.org. And Anna's, the website that she mentioned, will also be linked there and on this podcast. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you want to hear more of, review our podcast, and share with like-minded innovators. So please be subscribed because we have some great other episodes recording right now. And let's keep talking. Tag us in your posts using the hashtag maternal health innovation. I'm Rachel Arudia, and we'll see you again next week on the Maternal Health Innovation Podcast. This project is supported by the Health Resources and Service Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, under grant number U7CMC33636, State Maternal Health Innovation Support and Implementation Program Cooperative Agreement. This information or content and conclusions are those of the author and should not be construed as the official position or policy, nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.